Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is the Horror Shots By now you will appreciate that there are many dark and fetid corners of the world that harbor vampires. Hello again and welcome back to another Horror Shots podcast with me, Casey. Today we are going to continue our little adventure in the Vampire Watcher's Handbook, a guide for slayers by Constantine Gregory. Now, I've done the first chapter over the last two weeks. Today, I'm going to pump out, I think, a little bit more. I just got to check to see how long chapter two is here, because it could take quite a while to read through the whole thing. It looks like it is actually quite a long chapter. We are looking at... What are we looking at here? Actually, it's hard to say. Identifying the undead. It goes on for quite a while. Um, So probably not the full chapter today. We will... Get somewhere maybe three or four subsections in. Because it looks like it's pretty long. It covers uh, demons and werewolves and all sorts of different things. And then where to find them afterwards. So we'll just start at the beginning of chapter two. But first there's a little bit of housekeeping that we kind of got to go through as per usual. Don't forget that you can check me out on Twitter at Pod. Remember, I will follow you back. It's been a little inactive lately. I haven't really had a whole lot to say or really mention. So yeah, I, I don't find the whole purpose behind Twitter. I know it is to, you know, communicate every thought that flows through your brain, but I'm not that kind of guy. I don't think anybody cares what I'm having for lunch. If I have something relevant to the channel or if I come up with uh, some kind of facts or, you know, have a conversation with somebody that's different but not gonna just tweet out you know that my dog looks really cute right now although she kind of does if you also want to you know support me a little bit more than you do by listening which of course is awesome and my favorite thing that you can do to support me is just listen but if you want to do a little bit more i do have a patreon at patreon.com slash horror shots there you can you know pledge and see all sorts of cool little rewards that you get for pledging at certain points And then, you know, maybe you'll get a free book or access to certain parts of my website. At the very least, you get a shout out on the podcast, which, you know, is kind of cool, isn't it? Also, I've hit 2,000 downloads total for uh, my podcast endeavors, which includes the Horror Shots podcast, which sits around 1,300, which is still quite a good number considering I only started about three or four months ago. And uh, my audio drama called P.I., which you can also find at uh, shows.pippa.com dot io slash pi check those out you know it's fun i got about five episodes up there and uh season two should be coming along anytime anytime now in the near future in the next five years (laughs) but anyway uh let's get back to the vampire watchers handbook a guide for slayers chapter two is called identifying the undead what is a vampire Accounts and descriptions of the vampire vary perhaps more than any other creature of folklore, mythology, or legend. Even the most popular defining attributes, the lust for blood, photosensitivity, fear of garlic, and religious symbols, fail to cross international boundaries with any consistency, all of which makes it impossible to give a single satisfactory description of the beast's origins, physical appearance, habits, and motivations. 
Similarly, neither can the cause of this unholy affliction be diagnosed satisfactorily. What is considered a curse in one part of the world is a gift to other parts, a power bestowed upon only the most fortunate. All that can be stated with any certainty is that if you are unfortunate enough to encounter one of their ranks, he is unlikely to be a nobleman with a widow's peak and a penchant for black. Indeed, you are more likely to come face to face with an ugly, fetid, shambling corpse with rotting grave clothes and equally putrid breath. I hope to paint a general picture of the many different species of the creature that the international vampire hunter may encounter. I will also attempt to map the various roots of this evil in the hopes that some unfortunate souls may be saved from their eternal fate. First, let me reinforce the caveat issued in the introduction. Throughout this humble manual, I describe creatures that may be merely the figment of paranoid superstition and uneducated minds. I cannot vouch for the reality of every form of revenant described herein. I have simply collated my personal findings with those of other investigators in the hopes that the hunter is sufficiently armed. It may not be possible to predict the terrors that await, but you can at least prepare for them. Subsection 1, or 2, I guess of this chapter, is called Congenital Vampirism. There are some who are unfortunate enough to be born under the curse of the vampire. These are the ill-fated souls for whom undeath is inevitable. They may pass through this life unaware of the diabolical future that awaits them, or they may be forced to live in constant fear of the stake and pyre. Those poor creatures have little choice about death. They will almost certainly return as a vampire. Born with a call. The call is a thin membrane that surrounds the fetus in the womb. Some babies are born with a sheet of film clinging to their heads. In some parts of the world, this is considered lucky, able to grant the child a sixth sense or protect them from drowning. To others, a call is a particularly dark red call, indicating that upon its death, the child will return as a vampire. The only recourse is to desiccate or burn the call and sprinkle it into the child's food. Otherwise, when this person dies, the body must be treated as a vampire. Now that right there is a little bit weird. Now, I know people eat placentas sometimes, or at least I've heard that people eat the placenta of their child after birth, but feeding part of the afterbirth to the child is sort of a new one. I mean, I did some research in the past about the origins of vampirism, and I never did come across this one. It's interesting. It's gross, but it is indeed interesting. The next little jot note that they have here is the offspring of a witch. Anyone who practices black magic, witchcraft, or Satanism is playing with their children's lives. The offspring of women hanged, drowned, or burned as witches were considered likely to return as vampires. Offspring of the Devil Catching the devil's eye may be enough to turn a fetus into a vampire. Mothers who know Satan carnally are guaranteed to give birth to a vampire, if not the Antichrist himself. There's a quote here. I love quotes, as you all know by now. Children, this begotten by incubi are tall, very hardy, and bloodily bold. We are told in Reverend Father Ludovico Maria Sinisterari's De Demonitelite, and also arrogant, beyond words, and desperately wicked. Illegitimacy is the next topic of discussion here. The Nosferatu is the illegitimate child of illegitimate parents. 
The living vampire is, in general, the illegitimate offspring of two illegitimate persons, wrote Madame Emily de Lazavasca Gerard, author of The Transylvanian Superstitions. But even a flawless pedigree will not ensure anyone against the intrusion of a vampire in his family vault, since every person killed by a Nosferatu becomes, likewise, a vampire after death. The seventh son is on here as well. It's the next one up on the docket. Being born the seventh son of a seventh son is a blessing to some, a curse to others. To the Irish, this bestows the child the powers of healing and second sight. To Romanians, it is a guarantee of vampirism. Born on a religious day. In some Slavonic countries, and particularly Greece, it is considered a curse and a sure sign of vampirism if you are born on a holy day. Accidental vampirism. That's the next one up here. It's a nice little subsection. Any one of us can become a vampire if the decisions we make in life take us down the wrong path. If mythology and folk tales are to be believed, the risk is very great. Vampire encounters is the first little note here. As recounted in many works of literature, the bite or kiss of a vampire is enough to render any person one of the undead. Whether this happens immediately or later upon your death depends on the species of vampires to which you have fallen prey. Like the vampire bat, your attacker may return night after night, draining you slowly, or he might kill you outright, at which point you instantly come a bloodthirsty revenant. Black Magic Those practicing the black arts are sure to rise from the grave. Now, I'm not sure if this is entirely true. That seems like a very certain thing to happen if you practice black magic. I mean, theoretically, every kid who played with a Ouija board is practicing black magic in some way, shape, or form, and therefore they will all turn into vampires, which I don't think is the case because I'm pretty sure I goofed around with a uh, Ouija board in the past, and I don't think I'm going to turn into a vampire. I don't feel it. I think you'd feel it. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm not Constantine Gregory, and I don't have the insight that he does. But moving on, living a wicked life. Anyone who is evil, violent, or murderous risks the curse of the vampire. Prostitutes, liars, thieves, adulterers, apostates, and indeed any other wicked person should expect to have their body treated as a vampire upon death. In some cases where vampirism results from excommunication, absolution may be sought. But otherwise, a wicked life means a certain undeath. Now, I didn't know this is easy to become a vampire. Um, I'm not too certain how many people live pure and honest and earnest lives. I don't think I'm one of them. Again, this mixed with black magic means I should become a super vampire in the future. I mean, not that I'm a prostitute or an adulterer or a thief, per se. But, you know, I'm not a saint. I don't go to church. I don't really believe in that sort of stuff. I mean, kind of a prostitute. No, I'm kidding. I'm not a prostitute. But at the risk of sounding holier than thou, you know, I, I guess I don't really fall into anything on this list. It, it's not really listed here what a wicked person is other than those things. So maybe I'm not that wicked. Huh. I guess I got to start doing some more bad stuff out there. But there is some more stuff that can turn you into a vampire. Accidentally, of course, not being born into it. Avenging a murderer. The only murderers who do not risk vampirism are those who kill to avenge another murderer. 
In Greece, if a killer remains unpunished, the family of his victim may be struck down with vampirism, or at least haunted by the returned spirit of the deceased. If the murderer cannot be sought, a close relative, friend, or spouse may suffice. Love without happiness can turn you into a vampire as well. As stated here, according to the Assyrian mythology, those who experience love but not happiness may continue living after death. The unmarried also run the risk of vampirism, especially those who die as virgins, is a little side note in the margins here. That's kind of cool. I know a couple of people who might come back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know who I'm talking about? No, you don't, because you don't listen to this. Werewolfism. That's a word, apparently. It's also better known as lycanthropy. The state of being a werewolf also carries a risk of vampirism after death. There are a number of supposed causes of lycanthropy. A bite from a wolf or werewolf, drinking water from a wolf's paw print, eating a sheep killed by a wolf, and being born with a thick covering of body hair. Interesting. That's all I gotta say on that one. A curse. Anyone who dies while under a curse can rise from their grave as a revenant. Of particular severity, there are curses placed on children by their parents. Now, this one I do believe. I did cover this one in my last vampire cast, or my first one back, I should say. And uh, curse does make sense. Uh, if you have that sort of power, the, the magic that runs through you, and you have the ability to curse somebody, you can make them do anything. Really, turning them into a vampire should just be as easy as snapping your fingers. Think, anyway. But moving on, we have causes of vampirism at death. Now, this is another sort of list, and uh, it starts with, Over the last 300 years, the church has defined vampirism not as reincarnation performed by the devil, for reincarnation is the remnant of God alone, but as the reanimation of a corpse by a passing demon. The mechanism by which the corpse becomes an empty receptacle for a mischievous entity may be triggered by any number of incidences. These include sudden or violent death. Any death that shocks the soul, quote-unquote shocks the soul, out of the body may leave the corpse susceptible to possession. Drowning, fatal accidents, murders, and heart attacks are all prime examples. Improper burial. A proper burial is paramount if vampirism is to be avoided. Any corpse left to rot in a shallow grave or ditch will find themselves not only prey to hungry feral animals, but also to vampirism. This theory is based on the Christian requirement for the body to turn, or in fact, return, to dust before the soul can properly enter heaven. Without a proper covering of earth, the requisite six feet is believed that the body will not be able to properly decompose. Related to this principle, that a body must be buried in consecrated ground, only under the spiritual protection of the church can the soul make its way successfully into the afterlife. Excommunication Those who have been excommunicated from the church or remain unbaptized or apostate risk vampirism. A Greek sentence of excommunication runs, quote, Let him be separated from the Lord God Creator and be accursed and unpardoned, and undissolvable after death in this world, and the other which is to come. For without absolution the body will remain uncorrupted and entire in the grave, possessed by some evil spirit which actuates and preserves them from corruption, and that they feed in the night, walk, digest, and are nourished, and have found ruddy in complexion. 
Now, I know I kind of stutter over some of these words because they're not English to start. They're translated and they don't have the proper sentence structure that I, as an English speaking person, am used to kind of all over the place. But that's neither here nor there. I do my best to kind of read. <laughs> Sounds kind of dumb, but I do my best to read. It's not easy to do this for like 20, 30 minutes straight. Mouth gets a little parched. Just saying. Next up, we have premature burials. Anyone mistaken for dead and given too hastily a burial risks having the soul shocked from their body. Some may be fortunate enough to wake from their catalepsy in time. Consider the case of Cardinal Diego de Espinosa, Philip II's Grand Inquisitor, who awoke during his own embalming. Not so fortunate are those cases who awake during their cremation. In Historia Naturalis, the seventh, I guess, Pliny recounts the tale of Aviola, who awoke on his own funeral pyre, but who could not be saved from the flames in time. Even more appalling are those cases in which the deceased, quote-unquote deceased, awakens after burial. Evidence for this most hideous of deaths comes from the many disinterned corpses found contorted into agonized positions. Such discoveries are evidence to some of vampirism. Although before you push a stake through these unfortunate corpses, consider the more likely explanation of premature burial. Suicide. In the eyes of God, taking one's own life is considered the ultimate presumptuous offense. This so-called act of Judas is the enemy of all things natural and life-affirming, and thus a natural precursor to vampirism. In ancient Greece, the hands of the suicides were hacked off and reduced to ash. This, it was thought, would prevent the corpse from attacking a living person upon its inevitable return. Animal passing over the corpse is the next one. An animal leaping or flying over a corpse or a coffin may trap the departing soul on its way towards the afterlife. In such instances, the cadaver is left empty and becomes ripe for possession by an evil spirit. For this reason, in Scotland, pets are traditionally locked away until after a funeral. In England, it is customary to kill any animal that comes into contact with the deceased. In a related ritual in Greece, it is considered an honor to protect the corpse of a relative or friend from animals. If an animal succeeds in the overleaping the coffin, two sack needles are driven into the corpse and the house decked out with thorny bouquets and showered with mustard seeds. Not only animals prove a risk, however. In Russia, a corpse touched by winds blowing off the steeps will reanimate, as will a Chinese cadaver struck by a beam of moonlight. Passing a candle over a coffin puts the incumbent at a risk as well. And, should the shadow of a vampire fall on the corpse or a coffin, expect to see the deceased walking among the living later that night. The shadow works quick, apparently. Next up, we have Describing the Vampire. The noted stage producer and actor Hamilton Dean has had a lot to answer for. He is the gentleman who introduced into our psyche the image of the pale, fanged, and caped vampire. His stage portrayal of Bram Stoker's eponymous Count Dracula has spawned an immortal legion of undead minions, all dressed in elegant black evening attire. His was not the first stage depiction, however, that was in 1897, but it was effectively the last. Unlike a true vampire, Mr. Dean's stage creation failed to account for the possibility that corpses has festered in its grave for up to 40 days. Its wrapping sheet, or shroud, or burial clothes would have already smelled of the putrescent skin beneath. 
the stench anything but romantic or captivating. So for those more accustomed to the charming vampire fiction, here is a feature-by-feature profile of the undead creature of folklore and legend. It's another list, so bear with me. Kind of makes it a little bit easier to read, if I'm completely honest. Not too sure if it makes for compelling podcasts or not, but we'll find out, won't we? In general, expect the vampire to smell of putrefying flesh, an unmistakable odor not unlike ammonia. Beware, however, that certain vampires, like the Filipino Mandrugo, the Irish Lean Shaum, she, and Malay Lang Suir, may radiate a stunning beauty that lures men to their deaths. Others have the ability to transform into beasts, or even mist. Skin. Usually described as gray and pallid, the vampire's pale complexion may take on a ruddy glow after feeding on blood. In Greece, the term Tepanieos refers to the tight drum-like skin of a revenant that has just feasted on blood. Furthermore, the skin may be scaly, disquamet when burned. Hair. In Serbia and Romania, red hair is a sign of vampirism. Who would have known? I thought vampires and redheads were nothing alike, despite the fact that neither of them have souls. On second thought, I guess maybe they do have a lot more in common than one first would have thought. This idea is rooted in the belief that Judas Iscariot had red hair. All over body hair is rare, but not unknown. The Chinese Chang Shi has white or green hair all over its body. Malaya's beautiful Lang Suir has ankle-length black hair that hides a hole in the small of the back. Bram Stoker's portrayal of vampires having hairy hands has no basis in folklore or legend, although some witnesses have described a, a downy fuzz covering the vampire's palms. Eyes. Now, some say eyes are indeed the window to the soul. We'll find out in a second, won't we? In years gone by, any corpse found in its grave with eyes wide open would be treated as a vampire. In Romania, a corpse found with one eye open and one eye closed is considered to be in the process of transforming into a vampire. In Greece and the Balkans, blue eyes are a sign of vampirism. In other parts of Europe, the eyes of the vampire are red. To some witnesses, the eyes of a revenant are described as hypnotic. To others, they are black and lifeless, like those of a shark. Mouth. A cleft palate, or hair lip, or any other facial disfigurement may also be considered a feature of one who will return as a vampire. Even if not deformed, the lips and mouth may be bloodied from a feed and pieces of flesh may still be trapped between their teeth. However, those close enough to smell its vile breath will find the stench will be the least of their concerns. Tongue. A barbed tongue identifies the owner as a Polish upior or a Bulgarian ubior. In India, the churel has a jet black tongue, while the Filipino aswang has a hollow tongue with which it sucks up the blood of its victims. Nose. The Bulgarian ubur has a single nostril, but in general the vampire's sense of smell is heightened and attuned to the bouquet of blood but also very sensitive to perfumes, garlic, burning incense, and feces, all of which can be used to repel the bloodsucker. Fingernails. Long and talon-like, they may also be clotted with blood or mud. Teeth. Infants born with teeth are considered to many to be potential vampires. 
Note, not all vampires have fangs. The teeth of the African Asenbossum are normal, except for that they are made of iron. Now, that doesn't sound normal to me, but to each their own. If the vampire bat is anything to go by, the teeth are razor sharp, so sharp that a bite may cause the victim no pain. Internal organs. As strange as it may seem, vampires have internal organs. Disinterred revenants have even been discovered eating their own organs. The penangalan of Malaya is a little more than a disembodied head that flies around with its intestines dragging behind. In Europe, the heart and liver may be torn from a suspected vampire and burned to ash like a witch. The liver of a vampire may be pure white. Note, the Strigoi of Romania has two hearts. Now, there's also a little side note here that has the stages of decomposition. So I'll just read those to you real quick. There's three stages according to Constantine here. Stage one, muscles relax, body cools, rigor mortis sets in for one to two days, skin begins to shrink and retract. Stage two, internal decay begins as bacteria and parasites become active. If present, flies will lay eggs or deposit larvae in the orifices. Flesh begins to liquidize underneath the skin. Skin sloughs off easily. Maggots begin to migrate. Gases cause the stomach to distend. Dark bloody fluid discharges from orifices. Trunk swells to almost twice the original size. And stage three, skin turns black and begins to break, deflating the corpse and releasing foul-smelling gases. Decomposition continues only until the skeleton remains. Now, I do think that's a good place to call it. We have looked at the ways on how to identify if somebody's a vampire. So if somebody on the bus next to you smells like a corpse, be sure to stab them in the heart with a stake or behead them or set them on fire or something because clearly they're a vampire. Now, again, I'm finding this book very interesting. I know I kind of make fun of it here and there with little tidbits and quips and smart-ass remarks, but I do find it very fascinating. Whether this is meant to be a fiction or non-fiction book is still up in the air. He does have some historical facts, and he talks about actual documents and relics from the past that people use to identify vampires. And, you know, he, he goes over the different causes of what could make somebody a vampire and the belief systems from around the world, past and present. Now, I didn't know that it was customary to kill the animals of a person who died as well to make sure they didn't cross over the corpse, and that happened in England, and that's very strange. So as I've mentioned in the past few episodes that this book is very fascinating. Now, I'm not too far into it. I'm still only about 30-something-odd pages into it right now, and there's another 200 or so to go. So I'm not sure how likely it is that I will finish this whole thing. It'll take me probably about 10 to 12 parts, probably more at this point. I'm not reading a whole bunch. They do take a while. It's about 30 minutes per five pages, give or take. And that's because I'm, you know, obviously giving little quips and stuff in between. But again, do feel free to let me know if you don't like it. If you have any ideas on what I should do next, please feel free to let me know. I'm open to all sorts of different ideas, be it demons, monsters, cryptids, uh, anything that you can think of. Stories, ghosts, supernatural stuff, anything at all, I will look into. It's not that I'm short of ideas right now, it's just I find this a little bit easier with my time to go through. There's nothing jumping out at me right now that's super interesting that I want to cover. You can just look back at my necromancy cast to see when I'm interested in something, I go very, very in-depth. And when I'm not sure of what to do, I kind of pick a demon out of thin air and do some research on it, which isn't bad, but they don't have that 
kind of depth that these sort of casts do where they go on for about 30 minutes and you get some interesting insight on a specific topic. So if there are any specific topics, feel free to let me know. You can DM me through uh, Twitter. Uh, you can send me a message on Facebook. It should be the same as the Twitter at Horror Shots Pod or just search Horror Shots. You can send me an email at horrorshotspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Anything you got, let me know. Tell me how I'm doing. Tell me if you like the show. You know, don't forget to follow and leave reviews because those really help me as well. I know I'm kind of rambling on now, but anything you can do to support the show other than just listening, which again, as I said, is the best thing you can do because I love when you guys listen. Anyway, that's enough of that rambling. I will be back next week with another episode, probably going to do the vampire thing again, unless I come up with something else. So until then, remember, people who smell like corpses are vampires.